Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to the truths that are contained in Your Word. Please uh, give us uh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue our look at the book of Ephesians. Start in verse 17 and I'll read down to the end of the chapter. So please hear now the, the Word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor." For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the Word of the Lord. In this look in Ephesians, Paul gives us what we've been calling the grammar of the Gospel. In other words, he's explaining with both his words and the way he puts those words together what the Gospel really means to you and I. This book has in it the basic foundations and element of all of the Christian life in one small letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And in the middle of the book, he changes from what we call the indicative mood. In other words, telling us who we are in Christ. He changes to the imperative. And he begins to tell the people of Ephesus in the church how they are to behave themselves with respect, listen carefully, to what has already been done in them to change their behavior based on what has already been done in them. Now this is a lot different. You know, every religion has ethical standards that are very similar to Christianity. Almost every religion teaches that lying is wrong with a few nuances. Almost every religion teaches that slandering and speaking badly of your neighbor is wrong. Almost every religion teaches that killing is wrong and that cheating and stealing is wrong. What is the difference between that ethical standard 
and the one in which we believe the gospel uh, teaches, what we believe the gospel teaches. What's the difference? The difference is the motive, what is going on inside your heart. And that is where the battle rages for every one of us, folks, is what is going on inside our heart. And the Bible acts like a mirror. And if you're willing, and listen, I'm not going to tell you that it's easy. It is not easy to take the Scriptures and hold them up like a mirror and let them reflect back to you what is going on in your life. And that's exactly what the Bible is designed to do. That's what Scripture is designed to do. It is designed to reflect back to you your image, your heart, what's going on inside. And the Apostle Paul is not interested merely in modifying the behavior of the Ephesian church. He wants to go down inside their heart. And so he holds the mirror of God's Word up to them. And he tells them, look, there's this motif of walking, your life. In other words, your walk, how you go. And he's saying, walk like this. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called to. And then he switches and he says, but I tell you, do not walk like you used to walk. Your former manner, what you were like before you came to know Christ. And he describes it this way, in the futility of your mind. That we, told, we talked about this as your patterns of thinking. Your patterns of thinking. These begin when you're young and they get more and more ingrained as we grow older. And we get to where we're a mature adult and it's very hard to change those patterns of thinking. But they can be changed if the inner inside of your heart changes, the motives for why you do think changes. Paul assures us that our patterns of thinking will change. And he said, don't continue thinking like that in the futility of your mind. Darkened in verse 18, he says, your understanding is darkened. Our reasoning becomes flawed our reasoning becomes affected by sin. And so Paul urges us to not let that futility become a pattern in our minds. Don't be alienated from God. In other words, life, if, if you're ever questioning that life's meaning or life's purpose is uh, important or has any meaning or value to you, if you question that, then your thinking is wrong. Because Paul and the, and the Holy Spirit is assuring us that our lives are worth something. Ask yourself the question, why is your life worth something? Why is your life worth something? The answer of Christianity is your life is worth something because Almighty God has put a price sticker on the value of your life. That's why your life is valuable. God has put a price sticker on the value of your life. And that price sticker is a cross with His Son on it. It's a full, complete price, an ultimate price, an infinite price. So He's saying don't think like you used to, that you're not worth anything, that your life doesn't matter, that you have no purpose. Your life has purpose now because God has applied to you a purpose and a value. And in the next verse, he says, don't walk in the ignorance and hardness of heart. Don't be callous 
like you used to. You know, it's shocking how hard-hearted Christians can be even after they have been shown infinite tenderness, infinite compassion, infinite love. And so when you see those things in the mirror of your life, hardness, callousness, harshness, closed-downness, there's no spaciousness in you. When you see those things, it's supposed to alarm you. You're supposed to go, whoa, what is going on here? That's not me. And Paul says that. Look at verse 20 and 21. You're not that way. He tells them, you're not that way. That's not the way you learned or heard or were taught about Christ. That's not the way. So he's not saying that you are those old things. He's saying that's the way you used to be. Walk now in this newness of life. Reject those old patterns of thinking. Reject the old futility and move into a newness of life. And the grammar of the Gospel looks like this. Now in your ESV translation that you have there, they, I think they got at it pretty well, but here's a better, I think a better way, perhaps it will help you, of how to understand this. When he says put off, be renewed, and put on, he does not use a strictly imperative uh, verb. What he does is he uses an infinitive imperative. Now you, I, I know this is probably going to put you to sleep, but I'm going to take a chance. He doesn't use a strictly imperative. He uses an infinitive. So it should sound something like this. And the SV tried to get at it. I think this is better. Anyway, having put off your old manner of life, being renewed in your spirit, and having put on your, your, your new self. Do you see the difference? He's not telling you that putting off, being renewed, and putting on is something that you're always actively doing, although you are actively doing it. It's something that you're doing out of a reservoir of who you are already. Listen to this. This is amazing. John Stott. It is because we have already put off our old nature in that decisive act of repentance called conversion when you became a Christian. You're not trying to become. You already are something. Stott goes on to say that it's because of that conversion that we can be commanded to put away the practices which belong to the old self. Folks, we have got to get over the idea that we are dualistic beings. That there's a good... Scott and I have talked about this. I've mentioned it before in church and all of you have heard this in church before. There's a good wolf in you and there's a bad wolf in you. Yes? How many have heard it? Just admit it. The rest of you aren't telling the truth. There's a good wolf in you and there's a bad wolf in you. And these wolves are fighting. And the wolf you feed is what? The wolf that wins. That's Greek dualism. That is not Christianity. Christianity says that old wolf, that old man was put to death, but he's still present and he still speaks and he still tells us lies about who we are based on who we what? Who we were. The lie is you're no different than you used to be. You're the same old person. And you need to try harder, try harder, work, work, work. So that you can be something. 
That's not the gospel. That's just plain everyday religion. And if you want that religion, it's okay. You can have it. But I'm telling you folks, it's exhausting to be in that kind of Christianity where you're just being driven and driven and driven like, like a herd of cattle. And there's somebody back there whipping you on. Get on to work. Instead of telling you, come to me. Like a shepherd, come follow me. All ye that labor and heavy lay, I'll give you rest. Come to me. Move with me. There's a whole difference. There's a world of difference. Just so you know that John Stott didn't make it up. Listen to what John Calvin said. Now, if Calvin gets the gospel, believe me, you got to love it, right? Here we go. From this head of doctrine, Calvin's talking about this, this being. From this head of doctrine, that is the righteousness, listen folks, the righteousness of the new man, all godly exhortations flow. Like streams from a fountain. Don't you love that? Like streams from a fountain. For if all the precepts which relate to life were collected, in other words, he's saying if all the admonishments and commands of God, do this, do this, do this, do this, if they were all collected, Yet, without this principle, they would be of little value. That's amazing. Calvin's saying you can get all the precepts right, but if they're not coming from that foundation, that fountainhead of who you are. Look, there are, more, there are better and more moral people than you in this world that do not believe in Christianity, yes? Lots of them. They're better than you and they're more moral than you. The only difference is that when I do something right, I do it because something right has been done to me. Amen? When I do anything right, I cannot take and hold any claim on it for myself. I can say, wow, I told the truth because I'm a good person. When I tell the truth, folks, I am acting according to my new nature, to the new me. The old me would lie. Yes? Yes? I'm not sure you want to say that about your pastor, but it's okay. The old me would lie. But the new me, the new person that Jesus Christ created, loves truth. And if you don't resort to that, folks, in your battle, in your daily battles with sin, if you don't resort to who you were and, or who you are over against who you were, sin will seem to have, listen carefully, it will seem to have dominion over you. Because you're acting according to your old nature. Now, is everybody, everybody okay with that? If you're not, come to the question and answer afterwards and we'll talk about it. So Paul and John Calvin and John Stott are all saying that new identity, listen, new identity produces a renewed pattern of thinking. So that when you are doing the things that we're going to talk about in a moment, these seven things that I'll, I'll talk about in a second, when you're doing them, they're supposed to do something to you. They're supposed to be reflecting back to you an image. An image of who you are and who you're not. Okay? You with me? They're to be reflecting an image back. And, and these, these imperatives that follow, and we'll go through them rather quickly because we don't have a lot of time, but 
Um, these things have to do with three, three things very quickly. Let me give you this. They have to do, the imperatives have to do with relationships, how you feel and are motivated towards others. They have to do with your actions. And the way we, we see this is that Paul balances his negations, don't do this, with a positive, uh, uh, his prohibitions over against a positive, either implicit or explicit. In other words, what he does is he says, don't tell lies, tell the truth. Don't steal, work. You see? He said it, putting the negative over against the positive. He's talking about actions. And then third, he's talking about reasons. He gives us theological bases for why we do what we do. In other words, he says, don't lie to one another. Why? Because you're members of the same body. Why would you lie to one another when you're members of the same body? And so he's giving you theological reasons. Let's look at these seven, uh, seven steps, if you will, or seven different uh, mirror uh, reflections of the mirror. First one is in verse 25. Therefore, and he uses that same infinitive uh, uh, form that he used before. Therefore, having put away falsehood, speak the truth. Everyone knows that lying is wrong. Having put away falsehood. In other words, falsehood, lying to one another, is part of that old life. Now, speak the truth. And speaking the truth can take a lot of forms, right? Men, if your wife asks you if that dress makes her look fat, what are you supposed to say? Yeah, yeah. you don't say yes, you don't say no. You, better, best answer is probably what dress? What are you talking about? I don't know. I don't see anything. Right. There's, there's a brutal kind of honesty. You all, you all know what I'm talking about. A brutal honesty that is not honest. It's cruel and it hurts. And, and, and I, I know that you know people, maybe you're one of these people, say, you know what? I speak my mind. I'm a truthful person. I never lie. I always tell the truth. My next question is, what about that lie you just told about never lying? Um, so so there, there's, there's this idea that I'm just going to say whatever is on my mind. And we're, I want to beg you this morning, please don't do that. We don't want to know what's on your mind. So there's a place for truth-telling, truth-speaking. And there's places where you don't say anything, right? Where you be quiet. But behind that, underneath that, is a desire to obfuscate. That's a big word, obfuscate. Or to, to blur the lines. And this is what Paul is saying. There's an integrity that should be present in the life of the Christian. In other words, how you are and who you are on the outside should be the same as who you are on the inside. Yes? An integrity to the human being that is a Christian um, that, that is recognizably different than just someone who's always saying whatever's on their mind and speaking the truth. There's a wisdom that goes along with being truthful. A lack of hypocrisy, a lack of pretense, and an embracing of truth to who you are. 
And you have to ask yourself this question. And I don't like this, but look, I'm going to give you these and hopefully they'll help you. When you catch yourself in a lie, and you will, you will know when you've lied, and you look in the mirror of God's Word, here's what you have to do. Why did I lie? Why did I present myself uh, falsely? Why did I put forth a false image? For what reason? Is it because I crave that person's approval? I want them to see me this way that I'm really not. There's a, there's a reality to transparency, and I know this word gets overused, but authenticity to our lives. And so when you're looking at me uh, on Sunday morning, hopefully pray to God that what you see here and what you hear coming out of your pastor's mouth is the same thing you would hear and see, minus the robe, on Monday. That I'm the same person. That I am who I am. And that's what Paul is getting at. Be that. Don't lie. Tell the truth. You're members of the same body. So don't deceive one another. Look at this next one. Anger and restraint. This is a hard one. A better translation, it it says in the ESV, be angry and do not sin. It sounds like an imperative, but it's another one of those difficult ways of translation. Actually, it should be more like this. In your anger... In your anger, do not sin. In other words, Paul is assuming what? He's assuming that anger is going to be present in everybody. And let me ask you this question. Is anger good or bad? Yes. The answer is yes. It is both good and bad. Is it, is it good to never be angry? of course not. There are things you ought to be angry about. You should be angry that racism still exists in the United States of America. You should be angry that Christianity is disappearing from northern Syria and western Iraq. Yes? We should be angry that there are still poor people in equities in our, in our, in our world. We should be angry that people are still going to hell. Yes? We should be angry. at There's all kinds of things. We should be angry... Well, I could go on and on. I'll stop there. There's plenty of things to be angry about that deserve anger. There is a righteous anger. Jesus was angry about a lot of things. He was angry about hypocrisy. He was angry about oppression of the poor. He was angry about uh, uh, false religiosity. He was angry about a lot of things. And He showed His anger. He was angry when they wouldn't let children come to Him because children weren't you know, weren't uh, as, as sweetie and think as we do in the West now today. Children were a commodity and they were supposed to make you money and preserve your life. People didn't look at children the same way. They loved them just the same, but their identity was different. They weren't the little, like the little exalted ones that we make them out to be today. Children are supposed to produce. They're supposed to be part of your family. They're supposed to do you good. And, there's, and, and Jesus didn't, was angry that they wouldn't let the children come to Him. So anger is both good and bad. But anger is often... And, and let, me, let me say this, folks, and please don't get offended. I don't want to offend you. But every time you express anger, it's always mixed. Right? No one in this room ever expresses anger 
that is completely righteous. Can I have a loud amen for that? All right, yes. Okay, you Pentecostal Presbyterians. Look, if you ever fall into this idea that I have a right to be angry, in other words, this person has done me wrong, and I have a right to stand up for myself and be angry over this, and there is no consideration in your thinking that there's something else going on besides just what they did to you, what's going to happen? You are going to lash out and, and crush that relationship. Anger is perhaps of all these seven things the most diagnostic of what is going on in your heart and mind. Anger is the explosive and addictive emotion that is most hard for us to understand and to restrain. And yet, if you are willing to go down and look at your anger and rage, and I know because I was diagnosed with having rage. Can you believe that? I mean, look at me. I am the, I, I'm a, I'm the perfect image of calm, collected, uh, everything's all together, right? I mean, come on. And Monty V and I sat in a counselor's office in Orlando, Florida, and she listened to me for five minutes, and she said, you know what? You have a lot of rage in you. And I said, yes, I'm mad at everything. Why? I'll tell you why. I, I don't know why I'm talking about myself. All right, I should be talking about you. You bad people, you. You know why? Whenever you're mad, really mad, if you're willing to keep scratching and getting down deeper and deeper, do you want to know what you're really mad at? What do you think it is? You're mad at God. I'll tell you, when I found that out, I wept bitter tears because I always thought I could love God and, not, and, not se and separate the two. And folks, if you will go to that place in your heart and say, I'm mad about this, because He's not giving me what I want. Because He's not giving me the President I want. Or the Congress I want. Or the Supreme Court I want. Or the child I want. Or the husband I want. Or the job I want. If you keep scratching and go down into that place of darkness, you will find that you're mad at Him because He's not giving you what you want. Your expectations are such that He is not meeting those expectations. I should have had this kind of life. I should have had this kind of child. I should have had this kind of husband or wife. I should have had this kind of money. I should have been this kind of person. And if you keep going down, you'll find you're mad at Him. And that that rage, that displaced and disoriented rage towards people and places and things and circumstances are all tied up in our relationship with Him. It's very diagnostic. It will expose our deepest idols if we'll just look at it. Anger is painful, but it can also be very helpful. Look at it. Why are you angry? What exactly is going on inside our hearts? And if we're willing to go far enough, we will see that our dissatisfaction and our anger at some point reaches down into that place where we're not satisfied with God's providence in our lives or in, our, or in His world. You know, this. how many of you believe in the sovereignty of God? Really believe it. 
then you know what? If you really believe in the sovereignty of God, then what happens is His will. Do you realize that? It's frightening to think that. Well, how can that hurricane have been His will? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that one. But nothing happens opposing His will. And that's a good question for the question and answer time afterwards. Look at the next few and we'll finish with this. Stealing and generosity. Let the thief steal no longer. Rather, labor. So that he can share with anyone who is in lack. Stealing, we know, is wrong. But it can also be avarice and greed and stinginess and unwillingness to let go of things that we have. What about envy? Or jealousy. See, when we're looking at someone else who has more than we do, or someone that's better looking than us, and so, or someone that's got more going on in their lives, they seem to have it more together. We say, well, I wish I could be like that person. I wish I could be that kind of a person. It's okay to aspire to better yourself. It's not okay to want what they have. And so envy and jealousy can eat away at our soul. And it's a kind of theft. And it goes down into our our hearts. Look at the next one, verse 29. No corrupting talk, but only building up, giving grace to the hearers. Jesus said this, every tree is known by its fruit. Listen to how important this is. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble. A good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Evil person out of the evil treasure, evil. For out of the abundance, the heart will speak. Listen to our talk. Is our talk corrupting or building up? Even when sometimes you have to criticize or perhaps you need to correct. If you have children, you know you can't just always be telling them, oh, you're wonderful, you're great, you're wonderful, right? Go ahead and tear the house down and eat all the cookies. You can't do that. You have to correct. No, that's not right. No, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. Same thing with our spouses. Sometimes they need to be corrected, right? Right? Amen. (laughs) Never. (laughs) Yeah. But even when you're doing that, there's a way of doing it where you don't tear the person to shreds. And this is what uh, the Apostle is getting at. He's saying that in your heart, your speech is being generated. So when you find that your speech is corrupt, ask yourself, what is going on in my heart? Okay? Um, it's possible, and let me say this, it's possible that there is nothing in this world more destructive than angry words, angry speech. It's possible that a- the atom bomb, nuclear weapons, don't have the power of angry speech. Because a nuclear weapon will just sit there in its silo and do nothing until world leaders go crazy and start railing at one another and somebody gets so angry they do what? Or fearful that they push a button. And that's, while that's a global example, it can happen in your life. Think about it, folks. When you're angry and upset, what are you supposed to do? What did, what did your mother tell you to do when you're angry? Count to what? Count to ten. Yeah, and that's good. Count to ten. But why? Because if you'll just wait a minute, what will anger 
what will anger generally do? It will either dissipate or it will what? It will fester and get worse. So what the Gospel is saying, be angry, do not sin, and no corrupting talk, is Paul is saying, while you're counting to ten, go and take the Gospel and ask yourself, what am I mad about and why, what do I need to say about it, if anything? Yes? Are you with me? Why am I angry? And is it going to be worth these words that I'm about to say that are going to become like nuclear weapons and blow up the whole world? Or should I just absorb and be quiet and let it dissipate? And then come back maybe later and have a rational discussion. Yes? That's what we've got to do. Um, I'm going to stop with that. We'll, we'll pick up some of these. He talks about contrariness and humility. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Toxicity, putting away all bitterness. And then he talks about forgiveness. But how can you live in this kind of honesty? And I'll talk a little bit more about it next week. If you're willing, folks, to look in the mirror. Let me give you an illustration very quickly and then I'll finish. What the Gospel is going to show you is if you will hold the mirror of God's Word up to yourself, what you're going to see in that mirror is a reflection of yourself. Yes? What do you see when you put up a mirror in front of you? You see yourself. Let me challenge you to keep looking. Keep looking in that mirror. And if you look long enough, and while you're looking, you don't beat yourself up and say, oh, look at what a dirty, rotten, terrible person I am. But as you look in that mirror, consider the image of God in you that was bought and paid for at the expense of His dear Son. Look at what He did in you. And what will happen is as you look and gaze in that mirror, and you're not saying anything to the person, you're not exploding in anger, but you're looking in that mirror what you're going to see is your image fade and His image rise. And Paul says it in the next verse. We didn't read that verse. Therefore, 5, 1, and 2, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see that? The Gospel says that there is an image of God. That there is an image that became flesh and dwelled among us. He became a child for real. A baby for real. A human being for real. He was the beloved child. And we're to imitate in the mirror. You're not just to see the bad you. You're to see what He has done in you. Who you are. And that image will rise to the surface if you'll let it. And it will capture your heart. It will crush the anger. It will dispel those evil words. It will diffuse the lying. It will correct your heart. It will transform who you are if you consider that you're loved as Christ loved you. Love one another. Do you see it? If we'll do that, 
we would be a completely different kind of people. I pray that you'll do it. I pray you'll think about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy that endures forever. We thank you that as dear and beloved children, you have loved us and have created this image in us of who we are. And I pray as we struggle with our sins, our lies and obfuscations and our anger and our corrupt words and all of these things, Father, as we struggle with them in our lives, I pray that we will look into the mirror, the perfect law of liberty and find gazing back at us that beautiful image of Jesus Christ our Lord who became a man and for us and for our salvation laid down His life. Please, Father, make that real for us. Change us. Reshape our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.